reading. Good morning again. It's a privilege to be uh, sharing God's Word with you once again. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14 this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear... Then shall you also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, bond, nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. And if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Do ye. And above all, these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let's bring these things to the Lord and let's see what he has for us today. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your precious word. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be opened fully to its truth today. Lord, that we might take in that which you, which you would have us to know. And we pray for your wisdom, your understanding, being led by your spirit, that we might understand, Father, and Abide and grow thereby. Father, I pray that you use me for this purpose, that I be an instrument in your hand, that I might simply share with my brothers and sisters here that which you would have them know. Father, we thank you once again for this time, for the freedom which we have to learn in this way and come together in this way. We pray that we would never take it for granted, but that we would use the time we have wisely for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. In everyday life, we have rituals. Every morning when you wake up, think about the rituals that you partake in. You do your regular stuff every morning. One of those rituals is getting dressed for work, for church, for whatever. Now, do you necessarily wear the same clothes you wear to church at work? You may. You may not, depending on the type of work you have. But generally what we do is we have different types of clothes for different occasions, don't we? 
the types of clothes you go and wear to a party or the types of clothes you go and wear um, you, at church or at work or types of clothes you wear at home when you're just lounging around tend to be different. Okay, so if you're if you're a worker who works on a construction site, you, you're probably going to wear different types of clothes to the works the clothes you wear at church. We have clothes to suit or fit the occasion. Now, when the apostle in this particular chapter says, "Put off the old man, put on the new man," what he's essentially saying, or the picture he's giving us, is essentially similar to that. You're putting off clothes. Looking at the end of the day, when you get home, if you if you work at a uh, at a type of job that causes you to sweat and get hot, you want to get out of the clothes when you get home and get into some fresh clothes. That's the picture that the apostle Paul is actually giving us in this passage over here. As it were, it's a bit like saying that we're putting on our Sunday best. You've seen past generations; times have changed a bit. They used to have what was called a Sunday best. Now you might think, well, I've got Sunday best. I've got clothes that I generally wear to church, and then I've got I've got this suit, okay. But I've got a number of suits, so I tend to mix and match my suits. But going back a little while, maybe fifty years or a hundred years, they used to have one suit. You see, they didn't have, used to have as many clothes as we have now. Now with our, our wardrobes are getting bigger, our houses are getting bigger. Um, and we tend to have a lot more clothes and a lot more variety than they did in those days. So they would have their work clothes, their day clothes, and then they'd have their Sunday best. And the Sunday best was generally the, their, their best. It was one suit. It was pressed, it was cleaned, it was ironed, it was starched, it was ready to go for Sunday morning. And that's the suit that they would wear for that specific time. So the illustration that Paul's giving us is a bit like that. Now, do you want a simple illustration that describes a Christian life? It's this. You have it here in this specific thing. Is that the simple illustration is this, that we've been given a new life. God has cleansed us and made us completely new. But we still have some old, smelly clothes on. Clothes that, that we've been used to doing it a certain way, which God wants us to take off. And he's prepared for us a brand new, beautiful, sparkling, ironed, pressed, clean, beautiful clothes that he wants us to put on. They look fantastic. Do you want to know what this life is all about? Well, it's simply this whole life is about the action of getting dressed, of taking off clothes that aren't suitable and putting on clothes that are suitable because we're going somewhere. We're heading somewhere. Just as we get dressed to go to work, just as you might get dressed to go to a party or get dressed to go, we are getting dressed to go somewhere. And the whole, our whole life is about getting dressed, about taking off these other clothes and putting on the clothes that God has prepared for us. My friends, we are dressing ourselves in order to be rightly clothed for when we enter the eternal bliss that we call heaven, the greatest wedding feast of all time. I often find myself having discussions with people regarding how one is to have victory in this life. You see, when you become a Christian, the challenge is all of a sudden that you're in a struggle. 
you're in, you're in a battle and you, and you struggle and you I don't understand sometimes how you win the battle because the enemy tends to be very intelligent and very smart. He tends to have us dancing around from side to side and then we don't realise what we're doing, we tend to trip ourselves up. Well, God's given us his battle plan in the Bible, so the more we understand God's word, the more we put it into practice, the better we're able to grow and grow stronger and be victorious in this fight that God has called us to. In this passage, the Apostle Paul encourages once again in this battle. You see, I spent a good six weeks reading from Philippians chapter 3. And the, the picture that, that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 3 is that we're in a race. And to, in order to win this race, we need to put the effort into this race. But we need to understand, first of all, what we're racing for. Because it's not just any race that we're in. We're actually in a race to, to be as much like our Saviour as we can. To be as close to him as we possibly can. To learn of him as, we, as, we, as much as we possibly can. Keeping our eyes fixed on him, our Saviour who is perfect, who is holy, who is our prize when we get into heaven. I've told you over and over again, I don't care in the end in heaven if there are gold streets. It doesn't matter how big my house is going to be there. The only thing that really concerns me is that I'll be the, with the one who loves me and gave himself for me. That's what life is about. And you know that's true because in the end, it doesn't matter how big a house you've got, what sort of a car you drive on this earth, what sort of a job you have, if you are with the people that love you and you love, that's what makes life worth living. And in the end, we'll be with the one who loves us the most. That's the goal of our life, to be with him. And while I'm here, while I'm getting myself undressed of all the stuff that, that he still wants me to take off, I'm going to be putting on stuff because I want to be as much like him. By the time I get to him, I want to be as much like him as I possibly can. I want to look like him. I want to sound like him. I want to do the things that he, that he would do in this life. So Paul spends the whole of chapter 3 of Philippians telling us that, that this is our goal. He is our goal. There is nothing else that we need to be worried about. He is the goal of our lives. But Paul's also understood that we tend to learn by observation. Sometimes it's difficult to focus on him. Sometimes it's difficult. So Paul says, look at my example. So we tend to learn by observation. Remember the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And they were expecting him to give them a prayer and to teach them. So they could repeat and they could watch and then, and then copy. I don't know about you. But I tended to learn the most about prayer by listening to other godly men and how they prayed. I learned by observation. I learned by hearing. And we tend to be more like that in our lives as well. We tend to, we tend to learn quickest when we can watch something or hear something and then able, we're able to imitate it and actually get, get it moving a lot quicker than trying to work it out ourselves. So Paul says, um, look at me and how I live and imitate me. If you're struggling to find the, the focus on Christ, look at me because I'm already ahead. I'm already well advanced. So if I'm, in that, if I'm ahead of you in that direction going to Christ, look at me and then you can focus. it'll be easier for you to focus in the right direction. So we spent a good two months going through this chapter. 
of Philippians chapter 3. And this morning I'd like to go through 14 chapters of Colossians chapter 3 in one sermon. Do you think I've got a chance this morning? Um, it's not normally my style, because you know I normally dig deeper and deeper into the actual verses, but I'd like us this morning to get an overview of this particular chapter, because I want you to grasp the principle, the spiritual principle that's in this chapter, because I want us to be victors in our walk and not vanquished. I want us to be conquerors and not the conquered. And just as the last sermon we shared when the Wivels were here, um, that, that we need to understand that our real life is in heaven and not on the earth. So Paul begins this chapter with that very thought. So look at, read with me the beginning verses again. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, it says, If ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall also, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Point number one I want you to understand is our real life now. Who we really are exists in heaven. Therefore, our desires should be heavenly. It says, focus your attention, your efforts, your um, your um. Your desires should be focused on heaven. And it's something that it's difficult to understand. That somehow I exist as a citizen in heaven, but I'm still on the actual earth. That's because we get fooled by these things. That somehow we're the same as what, what we are. We struggle. We seem to struggle. We tend to have problems. And we think to ourselves, no, there's nothing changed in me. I'm just a, a person who's just like everyone else. But the, the real matter, the real thing that, that the Word of God tells us is that God has given us a new identity, a new citizenship. That's the foundation for then launching into that life. Because, guys, if we don't believe that, if you don't believe you're a child of God, you are, it's almost impossible for you to actually try, live like a child of God. Our real identity exists in heaven, but for the moment, the Bible says, it's hidden. Look at verse 3, what it says. It says this very thing. Your life is hid with God. It's hidden. So, it's something that's not clearly and obviously visible to us or the world. And the Apostle John echoes the same thing. He says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Now. So we're not waiting to be the sons of God. The Apostle John says, we are now the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. We don't know what we're going to be like. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One day, we will be glorified. The Bible says that we will see Christ when he returns for us, and we will be like him. With the same glorified state, the same body as, as he has. This is an exciting mystery when you think about it. It's absolutely extraordinary. This is the thing that we've been granted as the children of God and it didn't happen before. It didn't happen in the Old Testament. It's only happened because Christ has made the ultimate sacrifice for us. 
and he lived a perfect life in our place, and he rose from the grave, conquering death. And it's only because he accomplished those three things can we have confidence now and believe in the words of God. But this resurrection of Christ has also, wrought, has also been wrought in us in a way that, that we, don't, we don't understand. We know we've been giving you life, but you know something else? The Bible says we died. We also died. When we receive Christ as our Saviour, the Bible says that we were buried with him in that tomb. We died with him on that cross. We were buried with him on the tomb. That's why we've got new life, because when he rose from the grave, somehow we were risen as well. Look at verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. We died. So therefore, Paul says, if you're dead, this is what you should be doing. This is what should be the result. Verse 5, mortify. You know what mortification is, don't you? Okay. Kill. It's, that's to do with dead things. Okay. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. What are those members he's talking about? Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so Paul says, automatically, those things you should automatically drop. They should no longer be part of your life. If you have truly died with Christ, then those things should not come natural to you anymore. They should become abhorrent to you. Now that's, most of us would understand what most of those terms are. Most of those have to do with sexual sins. Anything outside of sex within marriage is generally not right with God. So most of these things have to do with that. But he also mentions covetousness, which is idolatry, which is coveting things in the world and putting those things before God, chasing those before we chase Christ. So Paul says, get rid of all those things automatically. They should be gone. They should be the, the, the things that, that fall off first. And he says in verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience are the ones who haven't obeyed the truth. In which time you also walked sometime when you lived in them. We used to be like that, Paul says. We used to live like that. We used to think like that. So point two, if our real life is in heaven, then our old life is dead. And the fruits of our old life should also be dead or withering on the, on the actual branch. Soon we're having some baptisms. Baptisms are exciting. I like baptisms. Baptisms are simply an outward sign to everyone, a declaration to everyone around who's willing to listen of what's happened to that individual on a spiritual level. What's happened, what Christ has done to them. Baptism is a picture of what happened when we were saved. Turn to Romans chapter 6, verse 3 with me. Let's have a look at a description of baptism. Just so we understand that it's a picture of not life necessarily, but death, first of all. Okay? Romans chapter 6, verse 3.
Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall all be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That's the old me has been crucified. The old Frank has been crucified with Christ. That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So the reason, one of the reasons we had to die was that sin might be eradicated from our lives. We had to die. The other reason is that you can't put a charge to a dead man. You can't bring a charge against a dead person, can you? You can't drag a dead person into court, set him up on the, on the, in the witness box and, say, and start questioning a dead man and say, we've got this against you. Once they're dead, you can't lay a charge. So one of the reasons that we had to die is that the law no longer has dominion over us. The law cannot be used against us because we died. We are no longer citizens of the world. We are citizens of heaven. The law was created for citizens of the world. We live in heaven. Our new self exists in heaven. It cannot be corrupted, my friends. So what should we conclude from knowing these incredible truths? Should we go on sinning because of this wonderful news? Well, you know something? In Paul's day, they, they accused him of the same thing. When Paul started talking about the grace of God and about this new identity we have and how it cannot be corrupted, the first, the first claim they charged against Paul was, oh, you're saying that people can just sin willy-nilly and do whatever they like and then you're fine with that. God gives more grace and more grace. And Paul says, heaven forbid that we should sin more. It should be something so abhorrent and bad to us that we run away from it, not more. So the answer should be to knowing that you are freed from the law, that you are free in heaven and that you, your, your new life cannot be corrupted or taken away. It's not that you should go on sinning, but that we should move on to holiness and righteousness to be more like the citizens of heaven that God would have us to be. It should spur us on to do good, to live as citizens of his kingdom, to be grateful for the new life that we have each and every day of these lives. To learn to express the heart of heaven in our own lives today. So let's see how Paul puts it in, in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 3. He says, but now he also put off all these. So first of all, Paul says, automatically you should drop all those all those." automatic sins that they should that should not come naturally to you anymore but he says but guys now listen carefully i need you to get rid of these ones as well anger wrath <coughs> malice blasphemy filthy communication out of your mouth one of the reasons that christians do not swear christians don't tell dirty jokes Christians don't blaspheme is because they offend 
our spirit. They offend Christ. Do you, do you understand that? Remember when, when Peter was standing outside the courtroom where, where Jesus was being tried inside, and it was at night, and there was a fire they had outside, and they were trying to keep warm out there, and Peter was just hanging around outside the palace, wanted to keep warm, but wanting to see what was going on. The little girl came up to him and said, aren't you one of his followers? And he said, no, no, I don't know the guy. Remember the three times that he denied Christ? They asked him again. He said, no. The third time they asked him, he did something very interesting. He started swearing. He really went the extra mile. Because the language that he spoke, that he naturally spoke when he was with Christ, was not to blaspheme and curse and do those things. So in order to prove that he wasn't a follower of Christ, he changed the way that he spoke. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm at work and when, when people tell a bad joke or they swear, I tend not to laugh along with it. I tend not to encourage it. I tend to switch off very quickly on the whole thing. I have an advantage, though, over you because most of the people that I work with know that I'm a pastor of a church as well. So I find myself sometimes people apologising to me when they, when they let a, um, a, a swear word out. But it should be like that. It should be that swearing, blasphemy, um, bad language, bad jokes are not common to us. We should speak differently. We should behave differently. When people see us in the world, they should notice there's something different about us. If they don't notice anything different about us, you need to ask yourself, What's, what am I doing? So Paul says, get rid of these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Don't lie. And people lie so easily these days. Lying is a natural habit of the people in the world, but it shouldn't be that way for us. Telling the truth should always be the number one priority in everything we do. Liars will not inherit the kingdom of God, the Bible says. So, telling the truth should come naturally to the child of God. So, point three. We should also realise that things like anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language and lying are not compatible with our new life. We must seek to put them off and treat them like the smelly clothes that they actually are. They smell. They stink. And God wants us to remove them. Our efforts should be now focused on removing everything in our conduct that is contrary to the character of heaven. I can't see people swearing in heaven, telling bad jokes in heaven. I can't see them doing anything of that sort. I can't see there being any lies in heaven. So if Whatever is our perfect illustration of what life is in heaven should be the standard to which we hold ourselves to today. We should seek to take off these things. But I want you to notice something. That the term dead in Christ is something that's happened already. It's not something that we're still trying to do. 
We died. If you're a genuine Christian, if you've been born again, if you've put your faith in Christ, the Bible says you're dead. You died. You're not trying to die. You died. But that death should result in something. It's something that occurred in the past. But the Bible says, but now you also put off these things. So now our efforts are focused on living this life. This list is not exhaustive either. Paul doesn't tell us everything. He doesn't give us an exhaustive list of everything that we should be putting off. He gives us a sample of those things. And we need to understand that these are a sampling of the way we, if you look at them, the way we interact with each other. We are in a fight, and fight we must. Look at verse 10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Point four. Just as we have put off our old man, we, we, we died, the Bible says we have put on a new man. Done. Past tense. Not putting on a new man. We've put on the new man. The challenge is the conduct that has to become this new man. So what are the new man's characteristics according to Paul here? Renewed in knowledge. God has opened up our mind to this amazing truth that we didn't know before. All of a sudden, we see Christ in a totally different way than we saw him before. We see the world in a different way. Our whole worldview has changed because God, the gospel of Christ has entered into our hearts. We understand that it. it's affected us. Now everything we see is different. We see it in the light of God's truth now, not the world's truth. And the Bible says that in this passage as well, we've been made after the image of Christ. God has fashioned me now. It's like he's created a new Adam again. Okay, From scratch, he's made me new in the image of his only begotten son. Where this, where our nationality, our culture, our past religion, our social status, our job or lack of a job, our freedom or lack of freedom don't really matter anymore. These things are, really don't make any sense. You see, in heaven, there are no countries. There are no statuses. There isn't someone who's got a better job or position than someone else. In heaven, if you understand your citizenship is in heaven, all these other things don't matter anymore. They make no difference. This new person has, has a citizenship where there are no countries, no cultural barriers, no religious divisions, no classes. And that's who we represent. Look at verse, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn with me there. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17 says, Wherefore, henceforth, that means from this point on, 
know we no man after the flesh. In other words, we don't look at them from a worldly perspective. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We have been made new creatures in Christ. We no longer see him or the world the same way we saw it before. And because God has said we are new creatures creatures with a heavenly citizenship, though we live on the earth, we must understand that we are, we are meant to put off the old ways of living, the old ways of thinking, the sinful ways of the world. And we are to put on the fresh garments that God has given us, which are characterised by the beauty of Christ, which are characterised by holiness, righteousness, looking more and more like him. Some people view Christianity as a set of rules and regulations. Thou shalt not do this. Thou shalt not do something else. It's a list of things that we're not allowed to do. Well, there are things that we should hate. There are things that should not come naturally to us. There are things that we know will grieve our Heavenly Father, which we want to keep away from. True. But a genuine relationship with God compels us to do things which are righteous, to love. And we'll look at these, we'll look at these things soon. In the Old Testament, people were motivated not to sin by fear. If you sinned, there was a consequence in the law. But the Bible tells us now that our motivation is not fear. The motivation that we have is love. The love that Christ had for us and the love that he showed us when he gave himself for us. The greatest motivating factor that you can have is love, not fear. Those two are diametrically opposite and opposed to each other. Love leads a person to do the right thing, to go out of their way, to sacrifice themselves for that person. The law doesn't necessarily ask you to do that. The law says thou shalt not steal from someone else. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not do these things. Genuine love fulfills that and then a whole lot more. Turn to Romans chapter 13 verse 9. I'll just give you an illustration of that. Romans 13.9 says, For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Is that simple enough? When a person is motivated by the love of Christ, they automatically fulfill the law. They automatically don't covet, don't uh, commit adultery, don't bear false witness. That's lying. Don't steal, don't kill. They automatically do those things as a natural part. 
Love automatically fulfills the law. That's what we're called to. That's the difference between living in the Old Testament and living in the New Testament. Loving the Lord with all of your heart is a piece of the puzzle that causes you to automatically do no wrong to Him either. If you love God, which is the first commandment, and you do that because Christ first loved us, then you will do God no wrong. You will only want to please Him. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. He says, And now abide faith, hope, and charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. Now we understand the word charity is, a, is, is even a more stronger word or form of love. It's a love that sacrifices itself for the other person. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. The love of Christ constraineth us. It doesn't mean hold us back. Constrain. It means to hold us and move us forward. The love of Christ propels us, compels us, it pushes us to actually do things that you would not normally do if you were trying to follow a set of rules and regulations. Do you get the difference? Now that we know that we have put on the new man and that that man has been created to love and display the character of heaven, look at what Paul instructs us to do in verse 12 to 14. He says, put on therefore, now that you know that, put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, <coughs> kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. That means putting up with one another. And forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on, what does he say? Charity, which is love. On all these things, which is the bond of perfectness. Look at how Paul finishes that list. Put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. You want to demonstrate the, and live the righteousness of heaven and Christ? Put on charity. Put on love. That's the clothes that God's given us. Put on love. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me. Because it, it will do well to look at how Paul describes charity in this well-known passage. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4 says, Charity suffereth long. That means it... it it's patient. Suffered long is a fantastic term. I'll talk about that in a sec. And is kind. Charity envieth not. It doesn't look at someone else, at what they have and what I don't have, and desire that instead. Charity vaunteth not itself. Doesn't lift itself up. Is not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopeth all things, endures all things. Charity sometimes fails. Are you listening? No. Charity never fails. Never. Never. Do you want victory in your life? 
Is that what you really want deep down? Then learn how to love. Learn how to love as Christ loved. Learn what it means to love your church family. Learn what it means to love your earthly family. Learn what it means to genuinely love the people of this world who are so desperately in need of it. Because they've replaced love with lust. They've replaced love with, with self-love. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they desperately need to see what it looks like. And you and I can show them that love. If Christ dwells in, in you, then you can love the way he loved. You can. He can lead you to love if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone. You see, because love never holds back. Love just doesn't sit back and do nothing. Love is always doing something, my friends. Only fear will, that will ever hold you back from genuinely loving. Because when you love, you risk being hurt. You know that, don't you? When you love, you risk being hurt. You risk looking foolish. You, you become vulnerable. If you genuinely love, you'll risk rejection. How does it feel when you do something good for someone and you go out of your way and you show them love and then they reject it? Is that a great feeling? No, it's not. You see, real love actually opens you up to pain and suffering. But we have a great example. We have one who loved so much that they actually crucified him on a cross and he was still loving from there. He was still forgiving them while they were crucifying him, in the midst of it. He didn't wait for someone to come to him and say, please forgive me. He was forgiving them while they were crucifying him. Only fear will hold you back from love. But you need to understand that real love is never, ever wasted. It never, ever loses. And even though you may not see the fruits of it today, you will see the fruits down the track. Genuine love will bear its fruits. It can overcome. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7 says, Many waters cannot quench love. It cannot be beaten. It's not the easiest, but in the end it will win. And love requires action. Real love is not just feelings for people. It's not the way you feel about other people. You see, love, those feelings that you get about other people, are what comes really after love. Love requires action despite the circumstances. Real love requires thought. It requires a choice. It requires action in the face of resistance. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 with me. We'll see what the Lord has to say about real love. Now, as I read through this passage, I want you to take careful note. How much of it has to do with emotion? And how much of it has to do with 
making a choice and doing something. Okay? So I want you to see how much of it has to do with emotion and how much of it has to do with choosing and doing. Let's see what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the land and on the, on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. So how does God define perfect? Perfection? It's loving without the emotion necessarily. Because emotion doesn't come into play here. It's doing. Blessing. Blessing someone while they're cursing you. Doing good to them while they hate you. Praying for them. When even though they're trying to take advantage of you and persecuting you. This is what genuine love is. And in the end, love wins. That's why Paul mentions mercy, kindness, humbleness, meekness, long-suffering. These are listed as characteristics of love because these are things you can easily do. Do you understand? If I say to you, love that person over there, okay, what does that mean? But if I say to you, you know that person over there, they're a bit of a handful, but I want you to be patient with them. Can you do that? Yeah, you can. You know what it looks like. You know that even though that they, they, they might not be getting it, that you're patient. You give them more time. You work with them. You give them more time. If I say to you, be kind to that person over there, you know what that looks like, don't you? It means to do good things to them. It means to be gentle with them. If I say to you, um, be meek, you already know in your mind what that looks like. You've probably got a mental image of it as well. So the Bible gives us, the Bible tells us to love, but not just that, it actually shows us what love looks like in all of its different attributes. And it says, you know something, if you've got a, if you've got a, a difficulty loving, well then do these things. Be patient, be kind, be merciful, be long-suffering. Do these things. And you know what you'll be doing? You'll be loving. Mercy can be shown when someone has fallen short of your expectations. They let you down maybe a number of times. Maybe you've been offended. You've been wronged. Maybe you've been cheated by someone. Mercy expresses itself by not venting your anger. It holds back from that by demonstrating your annoyance. Kindness goes another step and does something good for that person, even though they don't necessarily deserve it. Instead of something bad, kindness is a quality of being friendly, generous and considerate. Meekness is considering the other person higher than yourself. It's to hold them up, to lift them up. And you actually debase yourself. You put yourself lower. Long-suffering means patience. It means when people don't meet your expectations... 
our own high and lofty ideals about how we should be and how they should be. It means that we don't come down on them like a ton of bricks. It means that we gently nurture them. It means that, that we, we give them time and space they need. It means that we're there to support them. It means we, we give them time to grow and we help them along. Long-suffering is a wonderful phrase, as I've said. It's a wonderful phrase. Patience tends to lose a little bit, but long-suffering tells you exactly what God expects. It seems hard, doesn't it? To love when it doesn't come, just to love someone when it doesn't come back. You want to turn off the tap. You know what I mean? Isn't the first thing you, you feel like doing? You've opened up your tap of love, you pour out your love on, on someone, and then it doesn't come back to you. And the first thing you feel like doing is turning off the tap and looking for someone else who's going to appreciate the water that I'm, I'm ready to bestow upon them. Let me share a story with you. A newspaper columnist and a minister called George Crane tells of a wife who came storming into his office one day. And she came telling him about her hatred for her husband. She hated her husband. She wanted to get rid of him. She said, I don't really want to get rid of him. I want to get even with him for all the stuff he's done to me. So she wanted to get even with him. Before I divorce him, she said, I want to hurt him as much as he has hurt me. Dr. Crane suggested an ingenious plan. He said, go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait that he has. Go out of your way to be kind, considerate and generous as possible. Do all of those things. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him. And after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you, can, you can't live without him, then drop him like a bomb. Tell him I'm getting divorced. So the idea is that you build him up to this expectation and then you drop him from the highest point you possibly can. He'll be surprised at that. Then he'll really feel it. She went out. She said, that's a fantastic plan. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Acting as if I love him. For two months, she showed him love, kindness. She listened to him. She gave him everything she could. She reinforced uh, her love for him. She shared with him. But she didn't return Dr. Crane's calls. So he called her after two months and said, well, are you ready to go through a divorce now? Are you, are you, are you, ready, to, um, are you ready to go through and, and do the divorce? And she said, divorce? She goes, no way. I've discovered I actually love him. <laughs> now, what had changed? Her actions actually changed her feelings. Her actions had changed her feelings. The motion of love actually brought with it the emotion as well. 
the ability to love is not so much a, a promise or a feeling, but by repeated deeds. This illustration should teach us a very important lesson. That real love is not a feeling. The feelings don't expect the feelings to come first, or even immediately, or even for a while. Don't expect to feel fantastic when you love someone. Real love is a choice about doing good to people. Choosing to do good to them. To someone whom you may not even feel like doing it to. But there's another aspect to it. We need to understand this very carefully. Is that genuine acts of love not only transform the other person, it changes them. When you show genuine love to someone, it actually changes them as a person. But you know who else it changes? It changes you. It changes you on the inside. Things that you do on the outside change you on the inside. When you put the, these actions, the Bible says, being patient, being kind, merciful, and all these different things, if you put them into practice, you will slowly but surely discover the blessing of loving. And the person who is best able to love is the freest person. They're not bound by themselves and being, let, and being worried about being let down, fearful about being hurt, or ego-driven. Their ego doesn't come into play. Love destroys all those things. When you genuinely love, you realise that it's one person who you really want to take notice of, that love. The one who calls himself love, because he is love. Do you have a problem with sin today? Let me explain to you a principle. It's not just taking off the old. It's not just trying to stop doing something. But rather it's actually doing something. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not. It actually tells us, do this. Replace it with something else. The scriptures tell us, he who stole, let him steal no longer, but rather let him labour that he may give to other people. That principle is repeated over and over. We call it the, the principle of replacement. You replace what you did, which is old, and you replace it with something new. Because if you just try to stop doing stuff, you're just going to leave a gap and a hole that you will try to fill with another type of problem. But if you fill that void, if you fill that with doing good, with being patient, with being, with being kind and merciful and all those things, you know something? You will fill your life with love. I remember there was a... I remember hearing something once from someone. I'm not sure if it was about if it was about John or Charles Wesley, or it might have been about Jonathan Edwards. When they went up, when some one person went up to him and said, "How is it that you don't sin? How is it that you live such a holy life? Why why don't you sin in your life?" And he said, "Look, I haven't got time." <laughs> you know, there's actually a truth to that. It's not because he's so busy just doing stuff all the time that he, doesn't, that, you know, that, that, that he hasn't got time to sin. But you know something? His life was so filled with doing good. Was so, he was so focused on doing right and honouring God and loving that you just haven't got time to sin. There's no room for it in your life anymore. 
So remember, when you want to take something away from your life, replace it with something else. Remember that you no longer belong to this world, that you died with Christ when you gave your heart to him, that as a result of his death, that you are you need to put off the old rubbish, the old stuff that God doesn't want us to have any part with anymore, and that you are now a new man or woman. Seek to put on those things which are the characteristics of the new person. The characteristics of the new man are most characterised by what we call love. Love is always an action thing. It's always a doing thing. It moves us. It gets us out of our comfort zone. It's painful, yes. But without pain, there's no growth. It's not a feeling. Keep doing good to people. Make a list for yourself today. Make a list. Patient, kind, gentle, forgiving. List those things the Bible defines love as. And say, all right, who can I do these things to? How, where am I weak in these ones over here? Let me, let me really give that one a plug. Let me pray and ask God to give me that, the grace to be able to live these things. And you'll begin over, over time to see the fruits of that life. Practice it. Repeat it. Do it until you become it. Practice it. Repeat it. Do it until you become it. Until it becomes a habit. We've all been called to a higher life. We've been given everything we need to grow in the, in the, the, the nurture and the love of God and to be a winner in God's eyes. You want to be successful? You want to be victorious? Look at things in perspective and be clothed in life. God bless you. Thank you.